welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I hope you're all having a great spooky season. There may not be much chance for trick-or-treating this year, so the least I can do is make sure that you're well-provisioned with good conversation about the best horror writing out there. This week's guest is T. Kingfisher, whose new novel, The Hollow Places, follows on the massive critical success of 2019's The Twisted Ones. Both are reworkings of classic weird tales, and they are both full-throated horror novels, which is a nice return to the heart of the genre after a few weeks of discussing books at the lighter edges of things. What follows is a properly madcap conversation. We talk building your own golem, why frog biologists are particularly stressed at the moment, and how knowing a pig farmer can help you dispose of a body easily. So let's head to a small town in North Carolina. There's a museum there that has some very strange exhibits, and a whole world to explore behind the wall. Let's talk scared. Hi Ursula, uh, how are you doing? I'm good, glad to be here. Good to have you. Where are you speaking to us from? I am in Pittsburgh, North Carolina in the US. Excellent. How how are things there at the moment? You've got a lot going on, you guys. <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah, about as much going on with you guys, too. I think we're all hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, just about, just about. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to me. I should, I should lead off by saying that I've just addressed you as Ursula, and for the listeners who may not know, your real name is Ursula Vernon, um, but for the, the benefit of this podcast and your horror writing career, you go by the name T. Kingfisher. It's true, yes. As Ursula Vernon, I am a children's book author, and uh, those are two streams you don't want to cross. <laughs> Indeed. I'm not going to, I'm going to call you Ursula because it seems odd to refer to you as T throughout a conversation. That's fine. Out of interest, what does the T stand for? Uh, that's a great question. It depends on my mood. Most of the time it's the. Occasionally I tell people it's Terence. <laughs> it doesn't really stand for anything. Your new book is The Hollow Places. Uh, it was released in the US on the 6th of October by Saga, and it will be released here in the UK on November 3rd by Titan Books. Can you tell us a little bit about it to kick the conversation off? Well, uh, The Hollow Places is a pastiche, I suppose, of Algernon Blackwood's The Willows, and it follows uh, a heroine, Kara, who has had to move into her uncle's weird little roadside museum. I don't know if you have those in the UK, although I've seen the Butter Museum in Cork, Ireland, so uh, I know you have them nearby at least. Uh, The U.S. is full of weird little roadside museums with strange little exhibits, and that's what she's living in. And then uh, a hole opens up in one of the walls that is tied to one of the exhibits, and things get very strange and unpleasant after that. She uh, winds up going through the hole in the wall to an alternate universe that is a very bad place. Yeah, it is a really bad place. Both... The Hollow Places and your previous novel, The Twisted Ones, and we're going to talk about that a lot as well. But both of those novels kind of engage directly with classic horror stories. And you called it a pastiche. I don't know what I would call it. They they aren't rewrites. They're not direct sequels. How, in, in 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 a fuller, more elaborate way, how would you describe the relationship between your books and the stories that they 
kind of lead on from? Well, uh, I started uh, writing as T. Kingfisher, doing a lot of fairy tale retellings, actually. And to a certain extent, jumping to pulp instead of a fairy tale is not that different. They're both things where strange things are happening to people. And a lot of times I would read these stories, both fairy tales and, and old pulp and go, this is uh, not how anyone I know would actually react to any of these things going on. So I started doing uh, writing stories where the same things start to happen to a certain extent, but the people involved react more like people I know in my life would react. Uh, very few of us, I think, would ever react like a Lovecraft protagonist if Cthulhu was coming through the windows or anything, and we would drive away screaming. So uh, to a certain extent, it's it's about looking at these situations or these these weird happenings and thinking, okay, how would people really respond to that? <laughs> It's a, it's a very prosaic um, reason for her to stay. It's kind of, you know, she needs, she has a job and she needs to be there. And it, it, it really does read true because I, like you say, a lot of people would just flee these places. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the big problems in horror writing is always um, why does someone stay in the horrible situation instead of just getting in the car and driving away and never going back there, which would obviously be the sensible thing to do in 99% of the cases. It's the, uh, uh, so you have to give them a reason. And uh, I think the classic example is the movie Alien, where Sigourney Weaver has to go back for the cat. And so uh, in the hollow places, the heroine has to go back for the dog, basically, uh, because you could never leave the dog to be, you know, wander around in the woods and get lost and, you know, probably get devoured by whatever strange monsters are out there. I didn't want to do that exact same scenario again and uh, give the next heroine another dog, but uh, she has to stay because, you know, she doesn't have anywhere else to go. She She's broke. She's newly divorced. She has no health insurance, which is something that a lot of us are obsessed with here in the U.S., and uh, so she's stuck there. I think a lot of horror is uh, how do you keep people in the terrible situation you've made? The example I always think of, there's a, there's a great story in Stephen King's Dance Macabre where he talks about taking his mother to see the Amityville Horror. And, and, and whilst everyone else was screaming at, like, you know, the ghosts and the, the gore and, and all the horrible stuff, supposedly Stephen King's mother just sat there with her head in her hands, just saying over and over again, think of the mortgage, think of the mortgage. <laughs> yes, Exactly how many of us can just afford to walk away from a mortgage even if the house is haunted yeah exactly exactly yeah, i mean i thought that when i moved into my new house i've, been, I've mentioned this on the, on the podcast before but I, I live in a very old house in the north of england and i i went in about the first week um, that we lived here i went downstairs and all the doors in my house have got their own individual locks mm -hmm. which in itself is pretty creepy that is odd yeah i know like what's been going on and I went down and the kitchen door was locked. I hadn't locked it. My wife insists I did. I hadn't locked it. But um, yeah, and my first thought was, well, that's it. We need to leave. There's obviously a ghost here. But unfortunately, I now own this place, so I can't. Yeah, you tussle with that really well in these books, I think. You, you, you give people compelling reasons to stay. Well, thank you. So what fascinates me is the, the two stories that you've you've picked to address in your horror writing. Because... <sighs> 
There's Algernon Blackwood's The Willows for The Hollow Places, and there's Arthur Macken's The White People for The Twisted Ones. And they are kind of unambiguous, direct riffs on those stories. I think that's fair to say. In the, you know, the dedication and the author note and everything, I... I... Not trying to pull one over on the reader on that one. (laughs) But what I wonder is that they're quite unusual stories to pick because even to to people who are, are, you know, versed in in this genre, The Willows is an all-time classic. The White People is a little bit more obscure, but I would say they're both, they're they're not infamous in the way that something like, you know, The Telltale Heart or Sleepy Hollow or The Call of Cthulhu are. What was it about those stories you, that actually grabbed you in the first place? Uh, they scared me. That's a good answer. Uh, the Telltale Heart it doesn't uh, scare me. I am unlikely to murder anyone. And if I did, I wouldn't put them under the floorboards. But uh, I live in an area with a lot of pigs. I would drop the body in a hog waste lagoon. And if anybody wanted it, they could go dive for it. <laughs> Sorry, author. I think about these things way too much. Officer, she's joking. <laughs> Yes, in case the FBI is listening, I would never, you know, dispose of a body like that. But uh, no, they scared me. Uh, they're and and not necessarily. Neither of them is a stay up all night with the lights on, staring out the windows kind of thing. But there is a very disquieting kind of creepiness to them that. Uh, they stuck with me a lot more than a lot of other things did. Uh, I've read books that, you know, scare me and I can't put my feet outside the covers or whatever for another day or two. But those two were just, they were creepy and they kind of stuck with me and, and nagged at the back of my brain. And I was like, okay, well, obviously there's something here I need to poke at. To go further then, what about them scared you? That's an interesting question. I'm not entirely sure. There's something very unsettling about them. Uh, things that are are just off in a way that uh, a lot of more conventional horror isn't. Like I couldn't necessarily call the beats um, Blackwoods, uh, you know, about uh, otters, tur- uh, corpses that are turning into otters, and maybe they're not really, maybe it's just a, a descriptor or whatever, but the imagery was very vivid and unsettling, and so it, it just kind of stuck. The, the Willows is, is considered, isn't it, one of the greatest weird tales of all time? And it, and it I mean, Lovecraft himself adored it and i think the willows informs a lot of that lovecraft stuff about not really fully delineating the the monster yes you know not really revealing it in any way Uh, and that's something you also pick up in in the hollow places because as i say 18 times a week on this show i don't want to give away too much but you have some very very unusual enemies shall we say in this in this story were you all tempted to not like go ahead and you know flesh out Blackwood's creations and say this is what they are? Yes, I was, and there's uh, at some point um, I think Stephen King maybe in like on writing said sooner or later you have to show Cthulhu. I walked as close to the line of showing it as I could, and and in the uh, the twisted ones I absolutely you know show Cthulhu as it were. You you get right up and close with the monsters. You can look at them. Uh, in this one, 
because a lot of it was about a sense of alienness, uh, I tried to have monsters that could be shown to a certain extent, really creepy things that the heroine can get a very good look at and see all the details of to sort of satisfy the itch of of a, a solid, uh, uh, scary thing instead of just, you know, the, the ambiguous fear. And of course, you know, there's this thing, nothing will ever be as scary as whatever the reader is envisioning. So, but you can't always sort of pull away from the monster at the last minute. Uh, you get to do that once or twice per career, I think. And then after a point, you're just the author who never shows the monster Yeah, and people stop reading. So I, uh, yeah, I had to walk right up to the line there and kind of lean over it. But uh, this is a super alien thing from another dimension kind of thing. I think that doesn't, you know, uh, that no spoilers there just because The Willows is about alien things from another dimension. I didn't want to try to uh, solidify that in our world terms completely. I wanted it to definitely be a thing that maybe doesn't quite fit into human visual cortexes at all. So it's a balancing act at that point. You never fully show the creature. Obviously, Blackwood never showed the alien presence in his story. You don't don't show it truly either. But do you know what they are in your mind? Do you have something? Do you, do you have a picture in your mind that you haven't shown us? Not really, although that's, uh, I'm not a very visual thinker, which is kind of weird because I'm a comic book artist in another life, but I don't tend to think very solidly in pictures. I think more in the words around them. So I can tell you what the adjectives are, but I don't really have a very clear image of uh, what they look like. Uh, If I could get anything, it would be sort of a vague anime version of Old Testament angels. (laughs) Okay, okay. Yeah, because I I always wonder that. I always wonder when when authors leave things ambiguous, I always wonder how much they know what the thing is. You know, and I I sometimes think it's the best best mysteries are where the author doesn't know the answer either. I was speaking to Jo Kaplan about her novel, um, It Will Just Be Us which if you haven't read it is amazing. Oh, I've not. I will I will make a note. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's excellent. It, it was my kind of like favorite go story of the year. But I asked her if she knew the rules to the universe that she presented us with and she said no. And I think that's quite refreshing because that that is the truest mystery where even the person who made it doesn't know the answer. I think a lot of times you you know as much as you need to know to write the story and if I needed to know more about it in order to write more of the story, I, I would figure it out. But it, it's there are authors who, in order to write a character, they have to know everything down to their blood type and what they had for lunch three weeks ago. And there are authors who need a name and vague idea of what they might sort of look like. And I'm definitely one of the latter. Everything else I can figure out as I go along. In the in the twisted ones, there is a line that you know it's almost a refrain that that recurs throughout, and it is you know the line is from Mackens, the white people that inspired the story, and the line is I twisted myself about like the twisted ones. Yes, and you, I, I've heard, I've read that you said that is the line that you know inspired you to write the story in the first place. Now I've got to tell you, 
it made me so uncomfortable. And that that was the part of the book that really frightened me and bothered me. Because it's this idea that when you that if you read something, it can become almost an earworm that can send you mad. And I found that really, really disturbing because the first night I read it and I lay in bed, then constantly repeating the word in, the, the words in my own mind because I was thinking about them, thinking, oh, God, it's happening to me. Oh, you, you have set my little author's heart aflutter. Thank you. <laughs> is there any higher praise? And that isn't bullshit either. That really got me, it really made me quite uncomfortable to pick the book up for two or three days. It took me quite a while to read it. But what was it about that line that spoke to you? It's just a creepy line. I, I don't, it just, I read that and uh, and it kind of got earwormed in my brain. And I was all, that line is creepy as hell. Uh, and the thing is, a lot of the white people uh, by Mason is just, I have this sort of feeling that uh, a lot of found manuscript stories sort of irritate me because the manuscript is then immediately lost and the hero is recreating it from memory and somehow has this astounding memory and gets it, you know, word perfect or whatever for hundreds and hundreds of pages. I, I have my doubts. Uh, but, and other times I read the found manuscript and the editor in me just wants to take a red pen to the whole thing. <laughs> so part of the genesis of uh, the Twisted Ones was to have a character who was a freelance copy editor basically find a found manuscript and be going through it almost with a red pen going, well, I'd cut this bit. Okay, you said that already. Oh, for heaven's sake. But uh, I don't think I would have seized on that particular story if that line hadn't been just so creepy. Yeah, it's it's a weird story. It doesn't quite read like a Victorian teenager's writing. It reads more like someone trying to sound like a Victorian teenager writing, which I think is obviously the case. Uh, yeah, that line is weird. Was there a similar line from The Willows that inspired you by any chance, or was it a different inspiration? I think it was mostly a different inspiration, although the very last line of the story about a, uh, a dimension or a world inhabited solely by willows and the spirits of willows made me think, uh, that sounds like an interesting place. I would like to see what that's like, or at least write what that's like. I don't think I'd like to go there myself. I, I couldn't have made the start of this interview any more complicated because I've jumped forward and back across two books. <laughs> I apologise to the uh, to the audience. Um, I hope you're still with us. Let's unify it by saying that you've so far written a duo of you know very intertextual novels. Do you have plans to complete a trilogy? Uh, I have a third book in the works that is set in uh, in rural North Carolina and involves a couple of characters from uh, the Hollow Places making kind of cameos, and it's not. Uh, quite the it is not a direct uh descendant of uh, an old story the way that the previous two are but it deals with some of the same ideas of you know the classic there is a portal here why are you not leaving and it <laughs> tackles a uh a topic that i've always thought about whenever anybody sees uh okay, there's a portal to another dimension. Everyone is always overcome, usually with adjectives like eldritch and cyclopean and whatnot. Uh, no one's ever a biologist. No one is ever like, okay, hang on a second. 
I need to take samples of whatever is on the other side of the, the world here. Okay, yes, uh, there is an elder god coming after us. I see that. That's a problem. But I have to get some photos of these, these flowers. We don't have these back on Earth. I always wanted to uh, write a story where there's a scientist or a biologist trying desperately to get samples of what is on the other side of the weird portal before they're eaten by whatever monsters. So the uh, the third book will feature a, a burnt-out herpetologist who studies frogs, and that's what I'm working on now. I was going to say, I've heard rumour that there are some creepy frogs involved in this story. Yeah, is, so that's the same one, is it? Because I saw an interview with you. Yes. Well, you mentioned that. Okay. Well, I, well, frogs freak me out, so so that that will work for me. Oh, I, I love frogs, but uh, they're uh, because amphibians are suffering so terribly under climate change, and a lot of them are threatened. Uh, you you get the people who study them tend to be very passionate and wild-eyed and on the edge of burnout. And I respect them enormously in real life, and they make great protagonists. Who knew that? So there's a rich vein of kind of tension in herpetology. Uh, there really is. Yeah, I, I think all of the the biological scientists uh, are always teetering between: Am I making a difference? And oh God, maybe it's all futile anyway. So uh, uh, I wish they weren't there, but I. I this is another thing that scares me, so I'm willing to tackle it. Yeah, well, frogs, frogs are creepy. It's the way they move. They can go from being so still to so explosively mobile in a heartbeat, and it freaks me out. I'm, I'm not good with frogs. I I respect that. <laughs> you, you you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, there are all these, these cliched words like eldritch and, you know, cyclopean and non-Euclidean and all these things that come up all the time, these otherworldly stories. One of my favourite lines in The Hollow Places is when the narrator describes a creature by, by actually saying, everything in a Lovecraft story has tentacles. These weren't anything like that. <laughs> I love that. It, it both dismisses Lovecraft a little bit, and I think, I think Lovecraft needs a little bit of dismissal these days. Um, and it, it also demonstrates that your character kind of isn't aware of the Blackwood story, but she is culturally kind of old fay with Lovecraft. So I thought I, I like that. Yeah, if you're a geek of any sort these days or a reader of horror, you, you are usually at least somewhat aware of Lovecraft. And I am totally fine with sort of shoving him in the background and uh, uh, calling it cosmic horror from now on. Yeah. But I still think it's it's uh, cosmic horror itself is such a fascinating and wonderful place that we keep going back. And partly I think it's sort of like uh, some of the reason we go back to fairy tales is because we all know them. And so if you make a reference to Beauty and the Beast or Snow White or whatever, everybody knows what you're talking about. And if you make a reference to Cthulhu, we all know what you're talking about. Maybe in a couple of decades, we'll have a, a cultural gestalt that's a little wider. Would you ever take on a Lovecraft story yourself? I'd love to. I'd love to read your take on, you know, Red Hook or or Dun Dunwich or even Cthulhu. Uh, I totally would. I have not. Uh, I don't think I could do Red Hook. That one. Um, that one's just the racism is so blatant and right there that I think that is perhaps better left to people who are not 
let's face it, a white chick from the suburbs. Well, Victor Laval kind of smashed that anyway, didn't he? So Victor Laval, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, no, that, that has been done. That is defined. I nobody, I, I don't need to try to do that anymore because it's been handled. There's a couple I'd like to do. Um, weirdly enough, uh, one of my favorites is The Lurker on the Threshold. But as it turns out, August Ehrlich's uh, errors renewed the copyright on that one. So it's still got like another 30 years to go. So uh, maybe if I'm still kicking around in my 80s, I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. Yeah, there's uh, probably uh, I, The Whisperer in Darkness is a good one that doesn't get uh, tackled, I think, that often. And, of course, I, I loved At the Mountains of Madness, partly because I am an artist in any book where art history turns out to be the uh, the critical delivery of horror is is great by me. Something like that, uh, maybe. It, it would be cool to see you do that. I, 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 was, I, I want to see you pull together some, you know, like the MCU, like the Marvel Universe. I want to see you pull together some universe of kind of Edwardian horror. With a with a modern day slam, that'd be great. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 you could just go and do that for me. That'd be marvelous. <laughs> uh, sure, I'll, I'll put it on the calendar. I can I can yeah. pencil you in for for twenty twenty three. So you've referenced um, you know your your career in in rewriting and recontextualizing fairy tales. What prompted the jump into the darker stuff or pulp, as you've referred to it? Oh. <laughs> Here's the thing. Uh, as Ursula Vernon, I have written a fair number of children's books. I think I'm uh, 18, 20, something like that. Uh, how sad is it? I can't actually remember how many I've written. There is a point, I, I say often that inside every children's book author is a frustrated horror author, because <laughs> every time you try to, you want to do something in a book and your editor is like, this is not a thing you can do in a kid's book. And maybe that's just is me. Maybe other people have no problem with that. But occasionally my editor would be like, this is not appropriate for children. And I'm like, come on. Neil Gaiman did it in the graveyard book. I was going to say, just say Coraline. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, graveyard book starts with blood running down the stairs, but uh, he can get away with it. And apparently I can't. So every time your editor basically says, you cannot do this in a kid's book, it like piles up in this place inside your chest. And one day it sort of compresses down into diamond and you're like, that's it. I am writing a book where I can do every freaky thing I've ever wanted and no one can stop me. And then you get a pen name and uh, start <laughs> or have a pen name and just start, you know, going, I'm writing it all now. So basically, it was a pressure valve. You, you wanted to just basically hurt something. Uh, to a certain extent. Okay. And uh, and then, honestly, uh, I really enjoy writing horror, as it turns out. There's somebody or other, I don't know who, said that horror writers are terrified of everything. And the way we get by is by making other people just as scared of the things we're scared of. Because misery loves company. So I just started putting in things that I was scared of, like, you know looking out a window and seeing something looking back in the twisted ones and whatnot and just went from there. With, with that bit, part of the book, you, you managed to do the impossible. You managed to put a jump scare in a novel. <laughs> I, I'm very proud of that. It's very impressive. Do you consider yourself now primarily a horror novelist? Because I think, I think the world kind of does now. Uh, yeah, unexpectedly. I always thought of myself, uh, or at least as T. Kingfisher, as a, a fantasy novelist, because I, I write 
uh, mostly fantasy and uh, the horror novels. Uh, I self-publish a lot of stuff, and uh, which is you know how I make a living on that side. And the horror novels really uh, uh, broke out much more than I expected, and I my agents thrilled. I'm you know certainly not complaining. And the funny thing is that a lot of my readers who read the fantasy novels are like, those were always full of horror too. You had things in there that were not normal for a fluffy romance fantasy novel. And I'm like, really? I I thought that was all perfectly logical. And they'd be like, no, no, there was, there was definitely some horror in there. And my last fluffy fantasy romance had a lot of severed heads and monsters that, you know, reproduced by well it made sense to me because you know how golems are baked out of clay right yeah in a fantasy setting a kiln that big is extremely difficult to work with i i did a little pottery in my youth and it's <laughs> it's just i mean they, they explode they break it, it's it's a terrible practical problem so but all you really need of a golem is the head and then you can just shove it in any corpse you have wandering around and it can drive the corpse. Then you just replace the corpse and you need a much smaller kiln and it's much less prone to cracking and exploding in the kiln when you fire it. This seemed entirely logical to me. My fan base tells me that most fluffy romances do not include clay headed corpses wandering the streets. Anyway, that book is called Paladin's Grace. If anyone wants to look it up. <laughs> You're the, the, I think the ninth guest I've had on this podcast and I'm amazed every week that talking to horror authors throws up these these sound bites of kind of the prosaic part of life and the maddest shit and and that one, <laughs> th- that comment about the golem may may be the take, taking the cake so far. You follow. I, I just try to follow these things logically, and sometimes they wind up in very dark places. Actually, great segue to my next question. Speaking of, of dark places. You've already mentioned the museum, the setting in the Hollow Ones. So you've you've created this museum, and it's called brilliantly the Glory to God Museum of Natural Wonders, Curiosity, and Taxidermy. And I loved it. I want to go <laughs> there. Is it is it inspired by a real museum? Please tell me it is. Uh, yes, but it's inspired by about five real museums. Uh, okay. They- there are so many just weird little museums like that. Uh, the Albuquerque Rattlesnake Museum is uh, mostly it's a collection of live rattlesnakes, but because they had extra space in the corners, they you know there's a shrine to Steve Irwin, there's taxidermy, there's uh, random kachina dolls because it's uh, in New Mexico. Uh, the Cork Butter Museum is. Just a a labor of love about the history of butter, and these places are always like maybe three or four rooms at most. And you go in, and in this one, there's like a '70s film strip about the history of Kerrygold branding. And but the the passion that the people who run these museums have for their topic is just infectious. Uh, Near me, in fact, is a is the uh, Museum of Creationism and uh, Natural History and Tools, which uh, has a bunch of taxidermy and is even more out there than the Wonder Museum in terms of odd religious things. Uh, they and uh, uh, the House of the Rock in Wisconsin just. 
the Oregon mystery spot, if you ever get a chance to go there, is uh, our House of Mystery and Vortex. It's uh, it also it shows up as the Oregon Vortex on maps, which is uh, wonderful. Is that the place where water runs uphill or something like that? I've heard, I think I've heard of that. Yes, yes, the water runs uphill and, and they can roll balls uphill and it's all done with the angles on the building and people appear to get bigger and smaller. It's, uh, it, it is really trippy. I, I have been there and even though I am actually very skeptical of these things, I know, I, I understand how it is done to a certain extent, but it is still remarkably convincing. I, I actually have some experience of this kind of weird museum thing because I, I grew up in a tiny little kind of rundown town in um, in Lancashire in, in the UK. And if any of the listeners have ever seen a show called The League of Gentlemen, which is a kind of cult British uh, comedy, it was based on my hometown. And if you've seen that show, that'll tell you everything you need to know. In my tiny town of a few hundred people, we had a natural history museum. And it was like, you know, three rooms, tiny little dusty, like, display cabinets that no one had opened in decades. And downstairs, they had their own little library, all, all these old books. And, like, old men would come along in their moth and jackets and give presentations on their, their, their niche specialism. Uh, and there was something massively creepy, but also massively wholesome about it, that this tiny, this tiny village could support this, this museum, no matter how kind of, like, run down it was. Oh, yeah. So reading about your museum just sent me back to my youth going going there going to what we as we called it the nat with my dad and listening to some old guy tell me about you know something i really didn't need to know <laughs> so yeah i loved it oh yeah yeah there's i i think it's like i don't know if it's an archetype or what but those little places like that just spring up somehow and and then they've always been there forever and yeah. i i love them they're they're so good uh uh, one of the things I, uh, when I've traveled uh, a bit uh, uh, in other countries, I love winding up at their equivalent of the weird little roadside museums. They're just awesome. Have you ever been to the Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine? I have not. Oh, oh, Ursula, you've got to go. Is it good? I'm a massive cryptozoology nerd, by the way. So when I went to Portland, Maine, I made a beeline for this museum. And and good isn't the word. They've they've got like a, a yeti on ice, but of course you know it's in ice, so it could be anything, right? Um, and there's a whole display. I mean, this is not to do it any disservice. It's a great place to go, but things like they've they've got an, an entire um, display cabinet dedicated to um, dinosaurs that are still living in the Congo, but rather than having any evidence, they just have tiny little rubber toys of the dinosaurs <laughs> that may be in the congo and and they've got a whole thing on bat squatch and it, oh honestly it's it, it's amazing i can't recommend it enough if ever you're in maine go to a cryptozoology museum it's a masterpiece cryptozoology museum speaking of a uh, point pleasant west virginia the mothman museum there is uh they've actually expanded now it is more than one room i'm told and it is uh, it is just the epitome of the little tiny small town museum where they have one thing and they are working it really hard. And I am in fact terrified of Mothman, so I, I made a beeline for it uh, when I got a chance. It, it is wonderful. I still have uh, bumper stickers from it. 
So you, you're going down a very kind of dark alleyway with me now because I'm I'm a real nerd about all this stuff. And actually, your book, it, it mentions like Mothman and Chupacabra and skunk apes and things like that. Are you into that kind of stuff, that that fringe science? I, I'm not uh, I'm not into it in the sense, in the, you know, X-Files, am I a believer kind of thing, but I like reading about it because, I mean, one of the things about being an author is just, you read all kinds of random things and fall down rabbit holes and all of it is grist for the mill. And uh, like the, the phantom kangaroos, uh, I mentioned that in the book, I think and I, yeah. my editor left a note going, I actually looked this up and now I have learned that phantom kangaroos are a real phenomenon. Okay. Uh, if you don't know, it's where people driving down the road, see kangaroos on the side of the road. There, as far as we know, aren't any. My mother-in-law is actually claims to have seen one. And this is a very common phenomenon. And nobody knows why, because we certainly don't have kangaroos in the U.S. It's, I mean, actually, in a weird kind of coincidence, the moors around where I live, for years, there used to be a um, myth that there were wallabies on the moors near me. So we just had a brief pause there whilst uh, your dog Lacey had a bark at the mailman. Uh, and that is the perfect segue into my final few questions. Because I want to talk about comedy in your books, the kind of the comedy amidst the horror. And I think animals play a big part in that. So to give people who, are, who have not yet read your novels a kind of taste of the tone of, of your narration, I'd like to read a brief description of Bongo the Dog from the Twisted Ones, if that's okay. Go for it. So you, you describe him thusly. You say that Bongo is a rescue dog. He's not that smart, but he can detect if a squirrel passed by at any point in the last millennium. There's a tree in the backyard that he chased a possum up once, and he has visited this, that tree faithfully every day for the last two years on the off chance that the possum came back. I have no idea what he'd actually do if he caught a possum, lick it to death probably. Bongo is an excellent watchdog, by which I mean he will watch very alertly as the serial killer breaks into my house and skins me. <laughs> so for me, I mean, I could have picked one of, you know, dozens of examples. But for me, that that tone of voice across the two novels I've read is indicative of, of your style of narration. Your books are marked as horror, but they're very funny. So is that something you're aware of when you're writing? Is it intentional? I'm not sure if it's intentional so much as I can't not do it. I, I have a very hard time writing a book that, or writing anything that is unrelentingly grim. I start telling jokes. Uh, that's me in real life too. Uh, you know, if uh, we're ever in uh, a bunker waiting for the bombs to drop, try to be in my bunker, I will be hilarious <laughs> while we are all waiting to die. Uh, I laugh a lot, particularly when I'm nervous, and I tell jokes in situations that I probably shouldn't. So uh, I could never write a, a full-length novel that was not full of people joking around. I, I can do it for a short story, but... I always feel like I've sprained something afterwards and I have to go have a lie down. So do you ever worry that it might undermine the horror? I used to. And the funny thing is that I have known other authors who are writing horror who are, or a thriller or something who are working with an editor and the editor keeps telling them to take out jokes because it won't be serious enough. And I find that interesting because no editor ever says that to me. I'm not sure why, you know, my friends are getting this advice and I'm not, but 
I, I hear a lot that, uh, that the books are really funny in addition to the horror part. So I'm not, I'm, this, is, this is not disingenuous praise now, because I do mean this. So I do think there is something different about the way you do it, though, because unlike a lot of, whether it's books or movies, you know, you get that spectrum of horror comedy. Only one in a hundred will actually be funny and scary. Everything else can be a great film but it, or a great book, but it will fall more into one camp than the other. You know what I mean? Like Shaun of the Dead, for example, is a horror comedy, but it's a comedy with horror inflections. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes. And the, the example I think of where they really screwed it up, in my opinion, is um, the recent adaptation of Stephen King's It in the second chapter. I don't know whether you saw that film. I, I haven't. No, I... I pretty much gave up on adaptations of Stephen King novels, I admit. Well, I mean, the first one is is stellar. It captures, it's my favourite book of all time. And the first um, adaptation, uh, the first part of the remake captures the tone beautifully. And the second half is this three-hour film that continually punctures any tension or terror with a really weird kind of like gross-out frat boy joke. It's really strange. You don't do that. Your, your, for me, your humour actually reinforces the horror by, as you said right at the start of this interview, it's how a real person would respond to that situation. They probably would laugh because what else do you do in that situation? Do you know what I mean? What else do you do? Yeah. Uh, no, there's, there's a point uh, I have found uh, where uh, things, are, things go bad and things go worse. It's, and then they... And then one more thing happens on top of that and everything, and it just kind of falls over and you start laughing. It, it's like, you know, you're upset, you're upset, and then you get a flat tire and you're like, of course I have a flat tire. Of course that's what happens next. And you just crack up because the alternative is to, you know, uh, become catatonic and that won't really help anything. So I, I think there's an element of just the, of course, everything has gone so bad that now I'm laughing about it. Uh, there's also in, in pure writing terms of uh, you, you ratchet up the tension and then you have to let the tension release just a little so you can ratchet it up further. It's the, uh, the sort of equivalent of, you know, in the movie there, the, the music is always, you know, building to this crescendo and then something moves and it's the cat. And, you know, and the person relaxes because it's the cat and the music stops. Well, we all know that that's the point where the serial killer is standing right behind them. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's been done at this point. But as soon as they relax because it's the cat, then the serial killer shows up and then the music starts again. And I think humor, to a certain extent, is like having the, the cat appear. It's the, the moment where you get to relax for just a second and then whatever happens afterwards is worse because you you actually let your guard down for a minute so it uh if you juggle it right you can you can uh make it scarier because people can't keep their guard up the whole time but on the other hand i also just write a lot of jokes so <laughs> <laughs> and well you mentioned the cat and like a lot of the, the humor as we said is about animals in these novels so there's there's bongo the dog and the twisted ones and there's bold regard the cat in the hollow places and they're real characters they you know they, they, they really are like you know fully fledged characters in these novels what is it about animal companions that you like 
I'm probably uh, not terribly closeted furry or something. I don't know. Um, I, I've always lived with animals. They're around. I've always had uh, animals. I would always, you know, go back for the cat. Bongo is based, in fact, on my dog, Lacey, who is uh, the same breed, just uh, uh, she's female, but she has the same relentless enthusiasm, not one brain cell anywhere in her head, uh, but an amazing nose. Uh, Beauregard the tabby was based on a, a cat I had named Ben, who was this huge bruiser of a tomcat. And he was unlike any other cat I've had in that he felt like having a, another adult in the room. Like if there was a zombie apocalypse, you could have told him to watch one of the windows and he would have handled it kind of thing. He was, <laughs> he, he was this very, uh, I don't know, there was a lot going on inside his head. Also, I want to say this is not a spoiler because I, I say this everywhere. The animals live through my books. I'm not a monster. I mean, I'm a monster, but uh, humans are in terrible jeopardy. The, the dog will always live. I I sent uh, the Twisted Ones to my editor. In fact, I didn't have a cover letter. I just said, the dog lives through the book. And then I attached the file and uh, she bought it in uh, in like two days. So... <laughs> No word of a lie. The next question on my list was, would you ever go and kill one of them? So you've placated me. Yes. Yeah, I, I can't do it. I, you know, I, I will kill off humans uh, of all descriptions, but I don't know. And, and I realize that, that people will get very upset that I would care more about animals than humans, but these are fictional. So I get to do that. I don't think people will get upset about that. <laughs> There's an entire podcast that I should shout out called, does the dog live in this one or does the dog die in this one? Because that's what anyone cares about in, the, in these things. If you'd killed Bongo, there would have been a very strongly worded letter coming your way. Honestly, I was, I was invested in that dog. <laughs> Yeah, I, no, I, a lot of my readers would have uh, probably refused to read any more of my books unless somebody assured them that uh, the, the animal would be okay. It's, yeah, I, I can't read books like that where the dog dies. Uh, I think the only one I've enjoyed where the dog dies is uh, from a Buick 8, which is perhaps a lesser gem of Stephen King's, but I really liked it probably because of the whole, you know, scientific investigation of the monsters on the other side of the portal thing. And uh, they did kill off the dog, but by then I was already invested. Now, you're, the, you're the only person I've ever spoken to who, who likes that book as much as me. I, I, it's one of my favorite Stephen King novels. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, I love that one. I know, like, one other person who loves it. And it's, it's uh, yeah, it was so, it was the logical thing. It's like, there's a monster coming out of this weird car. Let me learn to dissect things so that I can take it apart and see what it is. It was it was yeah. such a good, human, sensible response to it. Yeah, it's a very human story. I I love the fact it's a very warm story. And I think all, I'm a Stephen King obsessive, but all the books of his that I think stand out are the ones that they're they're warm and they're about good human beings and you know and friendship and loyalty and bravery rather than they're not really about the monster. I think from a Buick Eight. Is, is that in spades. I, I love it very much. Yeah, and, and everyone is like, okay, we have this horrible thing. We must all pull together and figure out ways to deal with it. And yeah. uh, I love that. I have very uh, not terribly fond views of the police in this country at the moment, but uh, that book, is it gets a pass from me. <laughs> well, whilst we're talking about you know book recommendations and things like that, let's lead into my last few rapid-fire questions that I ask all my guests. 
All right, I'll brace myself. I'm going to throw a handful of questions at you, and I just want your kind of, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is often the truth. Is that okay? That's fine. Fire away. Question one, what was your gateway drug to horror? Oh, God. When I was in, like, fifth grade, I had a book actually on cryptids uh, about, like, the Jersey Devil and other mysterious monsters, and... We had to do a project, I think, on something, and mine was about the Loch Ness Monster, and it was it was Mothman. Mothman scared the ever-loving crap out of me. To this day, The Mothman Prophecies is still one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Okay. If anyone doesn't know about Mothman, by the way, Wikipedia Mothman, it's a great story. Question two. If you had to recommend one book to our listeners, and it can't be one of your own, what would it be and why? Oh, Lord. Uh, my usual answer is a fantasy novel, but we're talking horror. I would say uh, the the best horror novel you have never heard of is Firefly Rain by Richard Dansky. It should have been a cult classic. It is a brilliant ghost story, and nobody's ever heard of it, and it vanished without a trace. Yeah, I haven't heard of that. When, when is that from? Uh, I think it's about a maybe a, maybe 10 years old now. Yeah, you can get it in Kindle, I think. I, th- I think I have a Kindle copy. Um, I only know it because, I mean, it, interest of full disclosure, I, I knew the author sort of in passing, and I went to a signing to be supportive of acquaintance, and like he, he read the first chapter, and I was like, wait, no, I, I need to know more about this. This is creepy as hell. And it's actually really good. He has a terrible agent. He needs a better agent. They should have done so much with that story. Firefly Rain. I'll look it up. I'll, I'll put the um, I'll put that and the author in the show notes as well on the podcast. Sounds interesting. Next question: If you had one piece of advice for a novice author of horror, what would it be? Oh Lord, um, I suppose get a good agent applies to all writers, so it uh, doesn't really. Uh, uh, I think it, it comes back to something I say, write the thing that you're scared of because that feels real. And uh, at least if you make everyone else scared of it, you're not alone. And sometimes it kind of gets it out of your head too. Like uh, then I used to be really scared of things under the bed. And then I did a comic about monsters under the bed. And then for a while, a year or two, it was like I'd sort of been vaccinated because whenever I'd think about them, I would think, no, wait, I know exactly what they are. I wrote that bit. It's fine. My heroes are on the job. It wore off after a while, but yeah, write the thing that scares you. Get it out of your head. That's good advice. And speaking of which, the last question, the best question, what really scares you? I already said Mothman. I'll add gray aliens. And I think what it is, is a thing that I don't know what it wants. And it isn't interested in talking to me or negotiating with me or anything like that. And it's the indifference and the fact I can't convince it not to do whatever it's doing just freaks me the hell out. So Mothman and Grey Aliens. Oh, yeah. I mean... Also looking in mirrors after uh, when it's in a dark room. That that freaks me out. Really? <laughs> well, in case there's a Grey Alien there behind you. Yeah, exactly. You know, because that's the thing. It's like, what if there's something there? Then I'll have to deal with the fact there's something there. If I just don't look, then I won't have to deal with it. You ever seen the movie The Fourth Kind? No. Does it deal with that? Go and watch it and don't blame me. Oh, noted. All right. I will write it down and uh, and watch it with the lights on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, Ursula, I mean, it's been a great chat. I um, You really made me laugh anyway. We know where you're burying the bodies. <laughs> it's more. It's more. 
dump the bodies uh, as soon as Yeah, okay, we know where the bodies are going, (laughs) and we know that you need them for the golem because the kiln isn't big enough. (laughs) If we take nothing else from this conversation, we take that. But Ursula, the best look with the book, I recommend everyone buy it. It's a really fast, propulsive read. As I said, it was out in the US on the 6th of October. It's out in the UK on November 3rd. I'm sorry it takes so long to get to you guys. I wish it was simultaneous. It's fine. Not long now. You know, it'll be it'll be here soon. But for now, thanks for talking scared. Thought it was a mad hour. <laughs> Ursula may be my favourite guest so far. If the world was ending and I was stuck in a bunker with her, I imagine she'd have me laughing until the lights went out. It's a shame that we had to cut out a big chunk of that conversation um, whilst her dog was trying to eat the mailman. You never actually got the end of the wallaby story. Suffice to say, I live near a lot of open moorland and over the years people think they've seen wallabies. It's actually not the greatest story in the world, but, but there you go. I implore anyone who hasn't yet read The Hollow Places or The Twisted Ones to pick up a copy. They have that kind of easy reading, propulsive charm that made horror so popular in the 80s and 90s. They are very scary, but they're also just so much fun. And I I read both books in less than a week. That's not to say they aren't thematically weighty. It's just that Ursula seems most concerned with their readers having a good time. And with a lot of, you know, quote, elevated horror at the moment, I feel that that is an underrated quality. But speaking of other people's books, some of the titles we mentioned in this episode include, well, The White People and The Willows, obviously, because they are the the inspiration for Ursula's novels. The White People is by Arthur Macken, um, and you can find that in his original collection, The House of Souls, from 1906 or in, you know, any collection of weird fiction or supernatural fiction that's kind of worth its salt. The same with The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. That is The original collection that it was in is called The List and Other Stories, but it's in, you know, a lot of other compendiums. They are both worth reading, both because they're amazing, uh, but also because there's a weird kind of reverse engineering once you've read Ursula's novels. You can go back and kind of trace the, the the start of the story you know the the first section of the breadcrumb trail it makes for quite a strange unusual but rewarding experience beyond that we briefly mentioned joe kaplan's it will just be us you know joe was an episode guest earlier on i think episode four um her novel it will just be us for me the best haunted house story i've read in years really really good recommend it to anybody who likes a good spooky read we also mentioned Stephen King's From a Buick 8, which, as we said, is kind of lesser King, but a book very close to my heart. It's it's a novel about a police station that confiscates a very spooky car. It sounds really cheesy. It is intentionally kind of cheesy, but it's also a story about, about kind of decent men living small, humdrum lives in a very normal town and, and this incursion of, of otherworldly horror and how it affects affects their prosaic existence. It's really warm. It's a really, it's a kind book. It's a great autumn read for this kind of year. You know, sit down on a lazy Sunday and and smash it out in one or two sittings. Love it. Lastly, Ursula mentioned Firefly Rain by Richard Dansky as the book that she would recommend to people. I hadn't heard of it, or obviously, or read it. Um, I'm going to look it up because it sounds great. It sounds quite akin to the kind of books that Ursula herself is reading. And I've looked. It is on on Kindle in both. Amazon.com and Amazon.co.uk 
for quite a quite a decent price. So yeah, Richard Dansky's Firefly Rain. If you've read it or if you do read it, let me know what you think. I also want to briefly mention something that I referenced in passing, which is a TV show called The League of Gentlemen. Again, based on my hometown, which says a lot about my hometown. Any horror fans in the UK will definitely know this show. If you're not in the UK or if for some reason you don't know it, then please, for the love of God, track this show down. It's an anarchic, bizarre, horrendous in some aspects comedy that could, with the slightest tweak, could be a horror show. It's about a small town called Royston Vasey, which is not the name of my hometown. And it's, you know, it's full of all those real gothic tropes. It's full of incest and murder and traveling carnivals that steal people's wives um words do not do it justice but yeah look it up the league of gentlemen it's amazing so because it's spooky season and because i love you all dearly i'm going to give you a special halloween episode that's an extra episode dropping into your smartphone this saturday it's a substantial interview with colin dickey who is the author of some really interesting cultural investigations into the, into the unexplained and why we're so fascinated with mysteries and hauntings and monsters. As ever, you can find the show on Twitter at TalkScaredPod, on Instagram at TalkingScaredPod, or you can email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Because this weekend is goth Christmas, if you'd like to get me a present, then share the show on social media, or if even better, give me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes all the difference in the world. But until Saturday, walk your dogs, carve your pumpkins, and spare a thought for the poor herpetologists of the world. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.